Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Matthew 24. We've been going through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, and uh, Revelation uh, gives us considerably more detail than other uh, places, such as in the Gospel, where Jesus, for instance, talked about end times. Uh, But it's sometimes good to do kind of an overview, to keep everything kind of in its context and in its place, Uh, because when you do study Revelation, sometimes you get caught up in all of the many details that are given. Uh, But there is great value, I think, in keeping the big picture in mind. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives what is known as His great Mount Olivet Discourse, because that's where He gave it from, was the Mount of Olives. Sometimes it's referred to as His great eschatological discourse. The word eschatology means the study of final things. And so eschatological has to do with final things upon the earth. And so Jesus talked about that uh, as is recorded in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, It's also recorded in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21. When the disciples asked Jesus questions concerning the signs of the times and the end of the age, Jesus told them, that there were events that they could look for and that they should, in fact, watch for. When they saw these things taking place, they were supposed to know that the time was near and therefore be comforted in knowing that all was working together according to God's plan and God's timetable for the close of the age. Jesus emphasized to his disciples the importance of being good discerners of the signs of the times. Now, we have to learn to discern many things as we go through life. From the time we're small children, we are taught to discern. We're to discern between good and bad, making good choices versus bad choices to discern between what is right and what is wrong. And that really never ends. Even when we become elderly, we're still having to discern uh, between what is right and what is wrong at times as we're confronted with different situations and different opportunities in our lives. Jesus told the disciples when it came to end-time events, they must learn to discern what was of God and what was of the world, and be able to keep those two things uh, separate from one another. All believers are called upon to be good discerners where end times in particular are concerned. The way we become conditioned or the way that we become equipped to be good discerners of end times, there's really two things that we need to be conscious of. Number one, we need to know what the Word of God says. We can't just say, well, you know, I think it addresses the issue, but I really don't know what it says. No, we need to know what the Word of God says concerning end times, and it actually says quite a bit. And the other thing is, is we need to know what's going on in our world. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to become news junkies where we just watch the news all the time and we subscribe to ten different newspapers that are delivered to our doorsteps. It just means that we need to know what's going on in the world. 
we need to be reasonably up to speed on current events. And we need to, uh, as Spurgeon says, we need to read the Bible and we and what with have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another. What he was saying is Christians always need to be up to speed on what's going on in the world and interpreting what's going on in the world in light of what the Bible says is absolutely true. The world is not going to last. No matter how the world hopes or wishes or even thinks that it's going to last. No matter how much they wish there was no God. No matter how much they wish they didn't have to be accountable to anyone else for their behavior, it doesn't change the facts. Facts are stubborn things. The truth of God is greater than all of the fantasies of man, all of the hopes and wishes of man. I mean, mankind today, not only do they say we don't think there is a God, Secretly, what they're saying is they're hoping there is no God, because if there is a God, they're in big, big trouble. And they know it. No matter how much they loathe the thought of being accountable to their Creator, it does not change reality. We learned Wednesday uh, night as we were uh, watching the video on the Truth Project. He talks about insanity or being insane, and, and he gives the definition there of being insane is a loss of touch with reality. Many people in this world, in fact, increasingly so, it is true, that people have lost touch with reality. Generations in the past had a touch with reality that that many, if not most people now, don't have. Most people in the past, even if they weren't uh, hyper-religious or hyper-spiritual or whatever you want to say, they understood that God created the world. They understood that, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that Jesus rose from the dead. They understood the basic tenets of Christianity and they believed those things. Well, now we live in a world, a post-Christian culture, where lots and lots and lots of people don't even believe those basic things. Much less that Christ is coming again. Much less that God has a plan for this world. They just simply don't believe it. And in that sense, they have lost touch with reality. There is no truth higher than spiritual truth, God's truth. And many are not seeing it. In the days that Jesus was upon the earth, the thought of the temple being destroyed was unthinkable. They could not imagine that this splendid structure, this beautiful structure with all the wonderful architecture, they could not wrap their mind around the idea that anything could ever destroy something so great and magnificent, something that had taken so long to build. But Jesus tells them, that not one stone is going to be left upon another. And that was scripture was fulfilled very shortly after he spoke these words. In fact, uh, just a few years later, in 70 A.D., the Roman commander Titus came in and destroyed the temple, leveled the temple in Jerusalem. 
to their almost disbelief. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote of that temple, he said, there was nothing like it in all of the world. Yet Jesus said in verse 2, not a single stone is going to be left upon another. All is going to be thrown down. Who would have thought before 9-11 that we would literally watch in real time on our television screens the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center just collapsing? Who would have thought that? I'll admit, back in 1993, the first World Trade Center bombing where a bomb went off in the parkade underneath the building, I thought, well, you know, in my mind, I thought nobody can could do, really do any harm. They had a little explosion, did a little damage. It wasn't that big a deal. And I, I'll admit that I'm like a lot of people. I, I had a false sense of confidence after that event, thinking that, well, that was the terrorist's best, best attempt there. That was their best effort. Well, little did we know what was ultimately going to happen just about eight years later. Who would have thought? Who would have thought the temple, the beautiful, magnificent temple, could be destroyed? Who would think, as you look at this world and you see the big cities, the skyscrapers, you see the national parks, you see the natural beauty of so many places, you see houses lined up in rows, you see businesses. You see, all of this. And it would be very easy to conclude that, well, nothing can ever possibly happen to all of this. Could this really all go away? Could it be destroyed? Could it be ruined? The simple answer from Scripture is absolutely. Absolutely. And the Bible says unequivocally that it will be. It's not a maybe, could be. Probably, it's absolutely, it will all be destroyed. Jesus' point to his disciples in saying what he says in verses 1 and 2 in particular was that although it may seem unthinkable, even impossible to you, it can and it will happen. And the message for the world today is, is that it not only can happen, but it's going to happen. It is absolutely guaranteed to happen, that this world is just here on borrowed time and it's going to be destroyed. The world is ripe for destruction. Why? Because of sin. That's why the world will be destroyed, is because of sin. But I might mention too that the world is actually destroying itself right now because of sin. Sin is destroying the world. And some want to blame God for that, but mankind's sinful, sinful tendencies is destroying the world right now. The days are even worse than they were before the flood, when God destroyed the world the first time. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 it says, The thoughts and the intents of man's heart are only evil continually. What an indictment upon the sinful mankind. Man who was made in the image of God, God has to come back and say, the thoughts and the intents of his heart are now only evil continually. God was even grieved 
that He made man. So for Him to have sent a Savior is truly a glorious thing. And it shows the love and concern that God has for people. For those that are conscious of what is going on, the Lord, though, has given some insight into how it will all unfold one day. And I invite you to take your Bible, stand with me, as we read from God's Word in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things shall come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, and they will betray one another, and they will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Let us pray. Lord, as we bow our hearts before you this morning, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word. We humble ourselves before you now. Father, we pray that we would receive the message that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're seated. First thing we see in this passage is the sign of deception. We see that in verses 3 through 5 and in verses 11 and 12. There's a lot of deception that has always been in the world and there continues to be strong amounts of deception. Beware of any deceivers, he is warning the disciples. Beware of liars or those who bear false witness or have false testimony to share. No one is any more like the devil than when they lie. We think, well, lying's not that big a deal. We tell little lies or we stretch the truth or we fib a little bit here and there. But lying is a big deal. Satan is called a liar. In fact, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, uh, Jesus speaking concerning those who did not have God as their father or unsaved persons. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And, the de- and he desires, and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and he is the father of it or the father of lies. So it's a big deal when we lie. We're acting like the devil when we lie. So when a person lies to another, they are trying to preserve themselves at the expense of the person that they're lying to. The truth is not as important as self-preservation. They're trying to get out of trouble or they're trying to obtain what they want or what they desire. The truth is not as high a purpose to serve as themselves. It's true if a child lies to a parent, 
with a view of getting out of trouble. It's true if a politician lies to voters. They're trying to get elected. They're trying to get re-elected. They're trying to keep their poll numbers up. It's true when a president lies to the nation. It's about self-preservation, saving face in the eyes of onlookers. Privately, the disciples asked Jesus for clarification about the things that he had said. It was at this point that he strongly warned them, take heed that no one deceives you. The implication is that there would be a lot of people out there trying to deceive them. And indeed there are. There are a lot of people trying to deceive us. Just walk in a bookstore. There are books lining the shelves of people trying to deceive. And they may or may not know that they're being deceptive, but Satan certainly does. <laughs> he knows what they've written, and he loves what many people have written. Turn on your TV. Listen to people giving their philosophy, giving their ideas, giving their two cents worth. And they may or may not know that they're intentionally trying to deceive, but Satan sure does. And he's glad. And he relishes in all of the deception. Why? Because he's the father of lies. There never comes a point where Satan says, well, you know, I've told enough lies, I'm going to take it easy for a while. No, he just keeps on lying. Because that's what he's all about. God is all about the truth. Satan is all about lies in simple terms. He is warning here that there will be some actually claiming to be the anointed one. They'll go so far in their lying that they'll even claim to be Christ. But there will also be those who will claim that they are speaking on behalf of Christ. We've seen that many times in many different ways. We'll see politicians carefully and cunningly use the Bible when it's convenient for their cause. But when it's not, they ignore those passages. We've seen others use the Bible when it suits their cause or helps their case, but when it doesn't, oh, well, they don't know anything about those passages. There are false witnesses. There are deceivers everywhere in this world, and there would be for all of time. And Jesus warns His disciples to be on guard for those. He says all will hate Christians for His namesake. In fact, You'll be delivered up to tribulation. Tribulation means pressure. So when verse 9 says that they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, it is like saying that you will experience the ultimate in pressure. You will face great pressure. How ironic it is that even with the mass destruction in our world, just to show you kind of the way people think and the way that... Satan deceives and how successful he is in that deception. It, it amazes me that in our world, Islamic terrorists who have brought to, brought to America in the last few decades so much destruction, I mean, destroying buildings, blowing up people, shooting people, threatening to even do more, beheading people, you name it. And still, in this world, there are, uh, there's a large segment of the population who still hates Christians even more than they uh, hate the Islamic terrorist? It seems a strange irony. There is no logic in that. 
it can only be described in terms of deception, only in terms of delusion, or even outright in evil. Lots of false prophets, though, Jesus said, will rise and they will be spreading their deceptions. They'll find many people willing to follow them. There's never been any shortage of people um, uh, willing to follow a false prophet or a false teacher or a false claimant of some kind. You see it all down through history. You'll read about uh, some of the strange things that people have believed. And yet, I wonder, how, how do you get people to follow that? You'll study about some figure in history from way back and say, well, they believe this and they started this following. And the next thing you know, it's turned into a movement. I think, how do they ever get that off the ground? Well, it doesn't make sense if you're committed to the truth. But people often prefer to believe a lie rather than the truth. And Satan is very cunning and he's very crafty. Satan is not forthright. He's not a child of the light. He doesn't do things in the day in the day where it can all be exposed and out in the open. He does it slyly. He does it in the darkness and he deceives. In verse 11, many will bear false witness and many will fall prey to their deceptions. Lawlessness, chaos, even anarchy will abound. And because of this, many people will grow cold and they'll grow complacent in their faith and they'll turn from the church and from God. That is characteristic of the last days. So then we can predict, based on verses 11 and 12, that as the end of time draws to a close, many people will be disillusioned with God and their faith will be weak. Over the years, I've encountered a lot of people that used to go to church. I've encountered people that used to be deacons. I've encountered people even that used to be pastors who aren't even a part of church at all anymore. Why? Because they've become disillusioned with one thing or another. I have a very dear friend that used to be a pastor. And if you looked at him today, you would not think that he had ever been a pastor. I remember several years ago, this older man that I got to know at, at this gym that I used to go down and work out in in this town that we lived in, in Oklahoma. I had talked with him for a long time, probably six, eight months, maybe a year. We got to know each other pretty well. One day he asked me a Bible question, and I didn't think anything of it. A lot of people are always asking pastors Bible questions. But he acted like he, it was something that he had known at some point and had just forgotten or forgot where it was located in the Scripture. And I told him, and, and it was like a light clicked on, and he remembered. Well, then later on, he confided in me. He said, well, you know, he said, you may not really realize this, but he said, back about 40 years ago, I used to be a pastor. He said, and I pastored for about 10 years. And he said, I just got sick of the whole thing. And he said, I haven't even been to church in probably 30 years. This man was in his 70s. What had happened to him? He'd become disillusioned. He, he, he was like what it talks about here, that the love of many would grow cold. His love for God had grown cold. His love for people, his love for the church, had grown, his love for the truth had grown cold. And he'd become focused then back upon himself. Worried about his own personal things. 
I think of these kind of people when I read verse 12. Again, it says there, and because of lawlessness, and because lawlessness will bound, and the love of many, it says, is going to grow cold. People are going to just kind of be callous to the things of God. And they're going to be able to point to all the signs of the times and say, yeah, look, see, see how the world is, see how the church is, see how God is. And in their mind, they're not going to make allowance for uh, sin that has wrecked this world. Well, notice the next thing, the sign of disasters in verses six through eight. Wars and rumors of wars are talked about. They've been a part of civilization going all the way back. And certainly it's no different in the present. On one hand, what Jesus says is a blanket statement that no one can deny. It's simply the history of mankind in a nutshell. Nutshell, wars and rumors of wars. However, in the context that he is speaking here, he is saying that talking, he is actually talking about the actual end of time. It's more than just the normal wars and rumors of wars that are always with us and always have been. There will be an escalation or there will be an upheaval or there will be an increase of these things. There will be more unrest than there's ever been before. The main purpose, he speaks these things, is to comfort the disciples and future followers as the end of time approaches. In verse 6 he says, see that you are not troubled. Don't worry about these things. Be comforted, in fact, when you see these things. To know that everything is working just like I told you it was going to work. We haven't got off plan. We haven't got off track. When you see these things, let them confirm your faith. Knowing that I told you ahead of time that it was going to happen this way. And so when you see it happen, know that I knew it in advance. And so he's saying that to the church today. Even as we look at our perilous times, times where there's terrorism and times where there's diseases like Ebola and there's all kinds of uncertainty about immigration and, and we're, we less and less trust our government because of one scandal after another and all kinds of things. And we say, well, we're certainly living in a time where lawlessness is abounding. And maybe it would be easy for our love to grow cold too, just like verse 12 talked about. But we must keep our hearts warm, knowing just as the disciples had the tendency to let their hearts grow cold and their faith grow stale, we're to look at the signs of the times as believers and say, wow, it's happening just like God said it would happen. And we can be confirmed, we can be affirmed in our faith because we know that our God is still in control. Our God still is reigning upon His throne in heaven. God has an ultimate purpose, and God has an ultimate destiny for His children. And we can rejoice today in that truth, knowing that we'll not suffer the same fate as the rest of the world. God will spare us. Even as nations rise against one another, even as religious deception and religious persecution takes place, even as there is war, even as there are famines, even as there is pestilence, even though there are natural disasters all around, Jesus is telling His disciples, I'm still in control. He's still in control. 
He's telling his disciples that all these things should be viewed as normal. You say, well, it doesn't seem like normal to me. Well, for this world that is wrecked by sin, in fact, and indeed, chaos is normal. When all that was upon the earth was Adam and Eve and their two sons, Cain and Abel, just out of four people, one rose up and killed the other. 25% of the population at that point was a murderer. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? And we think that, well, it's just gotten bad in our day and time. Well, it may be getting worse. Who knows? We don't have a grasp, certainly, of what the future is going to be. We don't know what it's going to look like if the Lord tarries 20 years from now, much less 100 years if the Lord doesn't return. This world is in chaos. Why? Because of sin and the sin that has wrecked it. Jesus is telling His disciples that these things should be viewed as normal for this world. In fact, when you see them, let them comfort you in a way that you're reminded that God is still in control. When a volcano erupts, when an earthquake occurs, when something blows up, know that God is in control. When another nation invades another, know that God is in control. When Christians are persecuted, when there's sorrow, and even when there is tribulation, know that God is still in control. In the latter part of verse 8, Jesus says, these are the beginnings of sorrow. And one day this world will enter into the actual tribulation period that the Scripture warns about. And then all these things that we have seen uh, in the past will say, wow, they were just a drop in the bucket. Wow, they were just the tip of the iceberg of what is actually coming upon this world. Notice finally here the salvation of overcomers in verses 13 and 14. When those around us, even perhaps our own family and our own friends, become increasingly complacent and even sour on the things of God, we've got to keep on keeping on. And all of us have got family members that we wish were back in church. All of us have got friends and co-workers that we wish had some more interest in the things of God than what they have. How do we witness to them? The best thing we can do is to keep on keeping on and believing what the Word of God says and be a constant and ever-present witness in their lives. The endurance that verse 13 talks about carries with it the idea of spiritual salvation or final salvation or a complete salvation or a complete deliverance. With all these things in mind, believers then are to be ready to face whatever happens in this world. Nothing should catch us off guard. Yeah, we're surprised, we're grieved by the evil about the next disaster or the next tragedy. But at the same time, we sit back and we say, we knew that there was going to be a next one. We knew that something else would happen. Why? Because still, still sin reigns in this world. And it will reign in this world until the Lord puts a stop to it. Clearly what we are seeing now and have been seeing for a long time is the signs that this world is drawing to a close. It's getting to the end. The credits are about to start rolling on the movie screen. It's about to all end for this world. While these things, these upheavals in the world are going on, the gospel of Christ, though is being preached 
to a world that is desperately in need of salvation. And their only hope can be found in God and in His Savior and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to get ready and stay ready. It's time to know that you are in Christ. It is time to be living for Him. It's time to be telling others about Him. There's no better time than the present. Are you ready this morning, I ask you? Are you ready for the end of time? Are you ready for the Lord's return? Do you know Jesus Christ today is your personal Lord and Savior? Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're mindful of many things that are going on in this world that we don't fully understand. But generally speaking, we do understand. We understand that this world is wrecked by sin and this world, uh, on one hand, is destroying itself because of its sin. And on the other hand, you're ultimately going to destroy it one day in its totality because of sin. But Lord, there is hope for us. What we see in Matthew chapter 24 is just kind of a broad outline of what's covered in much greater detail in Revelation 6 and following. As the tribulation and events leading up to it are described in more vivid detail. We pray this morning, Lord, that our focus would be upon you. There's not much we can do to change the course of human events. But we can certainly control how we live. And we pray that we would live faithfully for you. And that we would tell as many other people as we possibly can. About how they can escape the wrath that is sure to come. Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. We pray that you might draw them unto yourself. We pray, Lord, today that you'd work and move in this time of invitation. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.